Hello and welcome to episode 237 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and today I'm joined here with I, I almost said a boy, a girl, and a dog, and that's and that's just rude to at least one person. <laughs> But I am here with three of my RPG fan co-hosts, uh, and we're going to be talking about Mother 3, that uh, Game Boy Advance really special gem of a game uh, that I-, I haven't felt all the feelings yet, but I know they're coming. But l- let's introduce the- them first, uh, starting with Joe Padilla. Hello. Also, Zach Wilkerson. Howdy. And Alana Higgs. Heya. So, um, Mother 3, uh, listeners, you might be aware of this already, but Mother 3 has never been uh, released officially in English uh, in in the United States or Europe. Uh, it's been one of those Japan-only games for over a decade now, to wit that uh, Reggie Fisame has joked about about like losing sleep over being asked about Mother 3 too often from his time as, a, as an executive with Nintendo. But l- let's talk about how each of the four of us know of Mother 3 and maybe have some love and affection for Mothers 1 and 2. Uh, starting with you, Alana. Uh, so I guess like most people, well, I guess I have a slightly more interesting or unique setting in the, the fact that I'm from the UK. So Earthbound didn't even make it over here on the Super Nintendo. Yeah, we didn't get it until it's Wii Virtual Console release as part of like those international ones that they started doing with Chrono Trigger. Wow, that's um, wild. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we didn't get it until 2009, 2010. It might have been a little bit later, actually. But, is, that, um, is that from, like, the Wii Virtual Console? I think so, yeah. It was just as the Wii was going out, they did, like, a big bundle. It might have even been the Wii U, actually, for Earthbound. Oh. Um, so they did a big, like, gradually released some Japanese-only titles, I think, as well, and a couple of non-Europe ones. And Chrono was... Trigger made it to the Wii, definitely, for I, Earthbound. I was a little concerned it was, like, not until the uh, the Super Nintendo Classic or something. <laughs> No, God, no. It is on that as well, though, which is good. So we've now got it on the Wii, the Wii U, and the Nintendo Classic, and also the 3DS, the new 3DS. Um, oh, sure, so right. Mm-hmm. We do that. Um, I didn't play it until 2015, um, so my only exposure to Earthbound was probably like most kids in that it was Smash Bros. Um, I actually main Lucas in Brawl Onwards as well, which is a funny coincidence, I think. Um, I just find him really fun to play with. I enjoy but, his uh, his forward smash stick of justice. Just, I enjoy it's, it's that. I enjoy the snake. I enjoy mm. the up <laughs> smash, um, the uh, PK freeze. I like all of that. Yeah, I have a fun relationship with Earthbound and I adore it. It is so good. And actually, my submission to work for RPG Fan was a review of Earthbound, which oh, is wow. cool. Um, yeah, so, 2015 is when you joined the site. That, that tracks. Yeah, I finished it a few weeks before and thought, well... I really liked it, so let's go for it. Um, so I guess we can thank Earthbound that I'm, or not thank Earthbound, maybe that I'm here now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've also played Earthbound Beginnings, which is the um, localized version of the original Mother, and I have a tiny bit of affection for it. Actually, I quite like it as buggy as it is, and I know Mike <laughs> don't like it. Yeah. So. Yes. I, I definitely like it more than Mike does. <laughs> I'll I'll uh, share my thoughts on Earthbound Beginnings a little later, but uh, Alana, have, is this your first time playing Mother Three? Yeah, it is. Um, I really wanted to hold off for an official release, but unfortunately, I've got a lot of free time at the moment, and I really want to play it. So, funny how that worked out. <laughs> but, I know. but uh, Zach, what's your background with Mother Slash Earthbound? Yeah, so I um I actually got the full box set of Earthbound, and uh, my family didn't have a lot of money growing up, so like I saved my allowance for three months to get my hands on that big box version of Earthbound um, oh. that had a strategy guide in it and had everything. All those things are gone now because I'm an idiot. 
and then I remember playing it like over like a like over like I don't know like a maybe like a week over a summer and playing it at night and I just adored it. I didn't understand most of it because I was I don't know nine when I played it. But, you know, I've played it a couple of times since then, and the humor has landed a lot better for me now. And I loved it a lot at the time, even though I didn't understand it. It was kind of like a, a pattern for me when I was growing up. Like, I don't really understand what this RPG is doing, but I know I like it. Video games, like, have something to do with teaching you how to read that can be a factor. Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> true. I mean, like, I, I talk all the time out of people I know about how RPGs made me read probably faster and quicker than I would have otherwise because I just like, wanted to play those games that my grandparents were playing. I uh, wanted to get my hands on them. But yeah, and then I, I played Mother One uh, before it was officially localized here. Um, and I, I pretty much am in agreement with Alana. Like, I like it overall, actually. Like, I, it, it is very busted in spots, but like, there are so many things about it um, that I think are really lovely. And I, I've actually tried to play through Mother Three, like, I don't know, like three times. Um, at this point, but uh, I've never gotten past right around where we're going to talk today, chapter four. So I'm excited to actually finish it. It wasn't because I didn't like it. It was just because like other things happened. So yeah, I, uh, I, I'm i jazzed to talk about Mother 3. Awesome. Now, uh, Joe, what's your background with Mothers 1, 2, and 3? So I uh, had no idea what uh, Earthbound was. And like probably quite a few other people, I was watching or I was playing uh smash bros at a cousin's house and there was this funny boy in a hat who had some really cool moves and i started playing as him all the time and that continued through all the smash bros games and of course that was ness um i don't know when exactly i learned um more about earthbound besides like the in-game trophies and melee about you know these characters and mr saturn and such but i first played earthbound uh, just last year I know, I know. <laughs> and I uh, I absolutely loved it. Uh, it quickly vaulted into one of my favorite games. I loved the music. I loved the characters, its sense of personality. And I really love its look as well. You know, known a bit about Mother 3, just from memes and such. And I, I didn't have a laptop that could ever run it before. So this is my first time playing it. And I'm very excited to talk about it and to keep playing this game. Right on. Now, uh, me, personally, I, I'm slightly alarmed. I might have gotten into this series the earliest out of all of us. I, uh, when I don't right, think that's true. <laughs> maybe not, but well, we're around the same age, and I think yeah. I also, I also uh, played Earthbound when I was 8 or 9, because um, yeah. that was right when I was getting into RPGs, and I borrowed Earthbound off of one of my friends, and, and Earthbound is, maybe still is, but at least at the time was his favorite game full stop. So I didn't own that big fancy box, which is again enormous. It's like it's like the size it's, of a shoebox. It was so amazing. Yeah, I mean, oh. with with a strategy guide and everything, he lent all of that to me. So I did have the strategy guide for part of my first run of Earthbound, but I got stuck at a really dumb part of Earthbound that I mentioned on another podcast. You can listen to that one. Anyway, I borrowed it from a friend, but didn't finish it. And then a few years later, bought a used copy for myself and did play it on a SNES in the uh, mid-1990s, eventually. So th that's how I first played it. And when I was emulating everything under the sun in the in the first half of the 2000s, I, pr I managed to find a uh, translation of the NES version of Earthbound Beginnings, and oh boy, I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> it's like, like, like the, the concepts it addresses... And the look of it, and uh, and a lot of the the story ideas it goes through, a lot of that is pretty cool, but I just was so frustrated to the point of infuriated by a couple of the really busted parts of the game, mostly to do with damage balance. 
Getting one shot is not fun. I don't. I don't disagree with you. Yeah, getting one shot in a for an entire dungeon when you've been slightly over leveling the entire dungeon just is, doesn't feel good. So, and I, uh, I will hold that against Earthbound Beginnings. And also, it's just it's not even the most functional Dragon Quest clone. Earthbound Beginnings is kind of non-linear as well. Like you can do yeah. everything in any order, and like for an NES RPG, that's revolutionary. But it's also really frustrating because if you played that whenever you did, like the availability of it and the like knowing where you've got to go and what you've got to do is pretty ridiculous. Like it's not easy. It doesn't hold your hand. Like no, not many games did in the NES yeah. era. But like, I played it, it with a guide when I played it, and like yeah. it, 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 it is very Dragon Quest in that way. I mean, technically, yeah, it's I mean Dragon it, Quest Two, which is the most busted Dragon Quest game, but without the payoff of the best ones, like your Final Fantasy threes and mm-hmm. Dragon Quest threes of the world. Mm-hmm. And I uh, and mm-hmm. I I don't I did not enjoy my time emulating a NES version of uh, Earthbound Beginnings. But I I am a big Earthbound fan, and I played Mother Three. When I was in college in the 2000s, I'm, I don't know exactly when, but let's let's say it was around 2007 or 2008, and I was uh, really enjoying it. I got, I think, to chapter six or seven, which it, and I have not gotten to where I stopped uh, in this playthrough. But then um, my my college laptop just got completely destroyed by some uh, questionable downloading that I was doing. Not not of anything, not of anything too awful movie. i mean it, it was a lot of it was a lot of roms in anime that's what i was talking about. i tried to i tried to download every porkies and my laptop was just not having it as it should it should be able to exhibit its own will mm-hmm. <laughs> oh joe and i tried to i tried to download uh but i tried to download pcu with young jeremy piven in it and that was fine somehow um, <laughs> uh, but, but anyway uh this uh this is not a university comedy podcast this is a mother three podcast uh we uh, we decided as a website to play mother three for the for retro encounter this month in may 2020 and uh again i'm, I'm still pretty early on i'm in chapter four but so far, it has been – it's almost the opposite of Mother 1 because this is a team that is making a good RPG. It does smart, cool video game storytelling things from the get-go. Again, I'm very early, but I'm eager to finish it because it – Mother – turns out Mother 3 is excellent. But, like, how and why did Mother 3 happen exactly? Um, Shigesato Itoi, the architect of the whole Mother series – was a, a Japanese celebrity writer, and I think he's, uh, I mean, he, he was a copywriter and, like, an editor and columnist. He was just a, a known writer in Japan in the 70s and 80s, and he contacted Nintendo directly because he wanted to make a video game because he was intrigued by the storytelling uh, ideas of the medium, and he made a Mother 1 and Earthbound basically back-to-back, and, and, they were, and they were successes. And Nintendo had a very positive relationship working with him. The old uh, the Yamauchi, the old Nintendo president, said he was the greatest genius in the Nintendo family other than Miyamoto. But it took a while for Mother 3, because I, I think that um, Itoi found making Earthbound a bit of an exhausting process. Like, making words happen in a video game is not exactly as easy as strokes on a keyboard or pen to paper. And he didn't... He sort of he wasn't interested in making more Mother slash more Earthbound until... Mother 3, where it had been long enough, he had ideas he wanted to explore, and the GBA was extremely ubiquitous. Uh, the GBA was the most successful system in Nintendo's history at the time, uh, until until it was surpassed by both the DS and the Wii. So, there, like, Mother 3 happened at near the tail end of the GBA's lifetime, I think, and it was a, a level of Nintendo success and story ideas and rest from the 90s for Itoi to move forward with it. So uh, what else do we know about Itoi and Mother 3's development other than the fan outcry to localize it that's been going on for 15 years or so? 
what I've seen is that um, originally they had a build of what was going to be "quote unquote" Mother Three for the Nintendo sixty four. Yeah, Earth, Earthbound um, sixty four. So, you can you can find um, screenshots of it even. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, exactly. And and in those screenshots, you see things like Flint and um, and some of the houses. And so it seems like um, they were kind of going for this. And I'm not sure what exactly happened to Earthbound sixty four. But, um, you know, you definitely see it when it transitions to Mother 3. And, yeah, I think you hit the the nail on the head of him not really understanding how things transition to video games in some way. Because it seems um, his process was to kind of dictate the writing in some way. And then he's like, okay, this is going to be in the game and this is going to be in the game. Um, but he wasn't, a, he wasn't an Iwata or something who was actually programming it or really having a, a full hand in the actual design on the computers or anything. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that uh, Earthbound 64 was supposed to come out for the uh, planned disk drive. Like there was like, they, at some point they had planned to make a disk drive for the Nintendo 64. Um, and then they got it canceled. And I think that's the reason that Earthbound 64, part of the reason why it went to the wayside. I, it, some of you mm-hmm. may, may correct me on this, but I think that's the reason why. It could could be. I I heard the main reason was him just being frustrated with uh, some basics of the development of video games process. But I I, I mean, what we need is a definitive book or documentary on this. Like, uh, I would the, read it in a minute. Mm, oh yeah, it would. I mean, it would enter the Netflix queue immediately for me, also. But, but to, uh, I think we can safely say that the development of Mother Three was troubled and or stalled at various points. And Itoi is a brilliant writer, but uh, was but making video games was not always as easy for him as uh, as his writing, and that that's part of why Mother 3 arrived when it did on the system it did. I, I think maybe the the lower budget and faster development time on the GBA might have been a factor. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I heard that he wrote it in like a week or like a weekend. I mean, I think like Mother 3 that well, as we see it on the GBA, like happened like in sort of like this weird fever dream for him. And I think that, yeah, the simplicity of the development, I'm sure helped that. Right. So uh, shall we get right to it? Or is there anything else we want to talk about background to the series before we talk about the story of Mother 3? Let's let's jump in. All right. Well, I, I I think maybe one important difference between Mother Three and Earthbound or uh, or Mother One is that there's a lot of setup before you're the boy leaving your leaving your house to go on on an adventure. Um, uh, Mother Three is divided into chapters, which we've maybe mentioned already a little bit. And the chapter where in which the presumptive main character Lucas sort of goes on his grand adventure is Chapter Four. So there's three chapters providing background and setup before that happens. And they're, I, I think they're, uh, those three chapters are really good at, at setting in the scene, but also at teaching you a little bit about how to play an RPG. Yeah. <laughs> um, they reminded me a little bit of Dragon Quest IV, too. Yeah, a little bit. Because uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In, Dra- in Dragon Quest IV, you have different characters for each chapter yeah. until the, the sort of main story begins. And like Dragon Quest IV, the first three chapters focus on three different characters, and they have to sort of teach you more about the setting in the game like before you get to what mm-hmm. the, appears to be the meat of the game. In the first chapter, you're a uh, very masculine cowboy man named Flint who <laughs> lives uh, just outside Tasmalee Village. With, uh, with I love his, his hat. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. His hat and his facial hair are just great. Yeah. With his wife, Hinawa, and his two children, uh, Klaus and Lucas. And uh, Lucas and Klaus are, you know, their, their names are anagrams of each other. I'm, not, uh, I'm sure that's deliberate. Although I'm going to choose to go the reverse localization route and call Klaus Klarth. 
Oh, come on. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I took five seconds to talk about a bad GBA game. Let's go back to the good GBA game. And, and uh, Lucas and Klaus are twin boys. Klaus is a little bit more brave and adventurous, while Lucas is a little bit more... Uh, they use the word coddled a lot in the translation that I'm playing it on. But it's like, you can tell he, he's a bit more of a... A bit of a crybaby, maybe a, a more of a sensitive boy than Klaus is. Then some real stuff happens. Uh, hmm. like, how do we feel about this family and what goes on in Chapter 1? Oh my god. <laughs> That's a lot to do, isn't it? In like an hour. Well, I mean, like, it's probably quite important to point out how cutesy Tasmili is at this point and how, like, a lot of things happen that apparently have never happened before. Like, one, it rains. Like, it never rains in Tasmili, and it's dark, and there's fires. You know, this forest is burning down around the city, and there's, um, oh, God, what are the names? Fuel and something? Fuel there's and a, lighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and their house is burning down, and you have to go in and save a child. And then even ignoring the fact that, Flint's wife and his two kids are at her father's house and they're missing because they should be back by now. And then you find out what happens and it's it's horrible. Like everything just piles on slowly in the first hour of the game and it's like, here you go, just off you go now. Like mm. Right. Tasmanian and the area around it are very idyllic. It's like a, a town where everyone helps each other, everyone gets along with each other, and there's even a, a scene right near the beginning where uh, Klaus and Lucas are playing with a baby dinosaur, uh, which are a, a big yeah. a big species called Drago. And there's there's the, the mom and dad Drago and the baby Drago playing with baby Klaus and Lucas, who are very young. They're, they're in the, I don't know, five to seven age range, I think. And... There's a forest fire, then a rain that puts out the forest fire, both of which are brand new to the people of Tasmanly, like Alana mentioned. And uh, things are v- very suspicious. Um, like robot animals start appearing. You uh, meet several other people in Tasmanly, uh, including including Wes, who lives with his son Duster at the at the edge of town. Again, like the whole of chapter one takes place in an hour or maybe ninety minutes, and culminates with um, the appearance of some strange people wearing pig masks. Uh, they are arriving in what appear to be flying saucers or UFOs, uh, and it's pretty clear that they're engineering at least some of the changes happening happening in Tasmali, the, not the least of which is performing horrific experiments on local animals. The end of chapter one is one of the dragos that was at the beginning um, having been, you know, Frankenstein into a into a mecha dinosaur, and and Flint uh, with Wes. Isn't Wes joining Flint on that point? Alec, isn't it? That's what it is. Yeah, you're right. Right, right. And so Flint and Alec, looking for the missing Hinoa and Lucas and Klaus, fight this giant mecha dinosaur. And actually, there's a scene, I think, right before that, where they learned that Hinoa died protecting Lucas. And and Flint just, who's very, again, very stoic, stoic, very silent, but very liked. He just, like, flies into a rage and shoves or punches a couple of of, of the bystanders. It's... It's a shocking amount of grief and emotion for the first hour of a Game Boy Advance game that looks like the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I mean, I think the fact that he's wearing a cowboy hat, too, like that idea of like masculinity as opposed to like real grief and like the way that a toy is willing to like play around with that because like he gets locked up, like it's put in jail because he's grieving. Um, and like this idea that like even in this like sort of idyllic setting like they're not willing to accept the volume of grief or the the pain that he feels from that um and and i love that when he breaks out because he breaks out of jail um later they they don't even 
um, like put him back. Like, like it doesn't matter to them. Um, and there are some references to it later, like, oh, someone broke this, broke this lock before, but who cares? Um, so yeah, but I, I love, I love the way that it plays around with the ideas of masculinity and grief and also like video games. Like you never see the hero, like hitting their friends because they're so unhappy. Uh, you know, with Flint, with the cowboy hat and such, he has this sort of old Wild West sheriff style to him. And when you walk by the jail earlier, there's a like a poster or something outside of it. And it's like, in need of not a sheriff. We don't need one. <laughs> We've never had one. No one's ever been in jail. Like, uh, and, yeah, it's, and, yeah, it's amazing. And, and it's interesting that after he has this outpouring of grief where he essentially assaults two people, He's, you know, he's thrown in, he's thrown in jail as basically the first person to be thrown in a cell in Tasmanian village. And part of it is probably that they've never experienced something like this before. They haven't had someone incarcerated. So it, this is completely new terrain for them, as is the mecha dinosaurs and the forest fire and the rains. I think it's interesting that Lucas is called Crybaby multiple times. And um, after, after the events of chapter one, um, or maybe at the end of chapter one, he goes up to Hinawa's grave and is and you hear mentioned that he was uh, crying there every day for several days in a way that is a little bit almost like he's wrong and what uh and what Flint did was right. I'm I'm not sure, but it's a they they I think they're they're uh, contrasting the way that Flint and Lucas grieved for Hinawa and Klaus. And and I should mention after the uh, after Flint defeats the dinosaur, um, you do see Klaus unconscious at the base of the mountain so uh Hinawa is definitely passed but Klaus may um Klaus is just missing and and also at like after you defeat the dinosaur one of the Drago's babies comes up and like roars at Flint and and tries to keep him away from the mecha dinosaur corpse and like that made me think for a second like oh no Flint realizes that now Lucas and Klaus aren't the only people that just lost a parent and now and to this baby dinosaur he's he's the monster that killed his his mom or dad with, yeah, someone specific. I think Alex specifically says to him, yeah. "Don't do that. What will what good will that do?" Basically, he stops him from killing the mecha dinosaur. No, no. I, I think I think that mecha dinosaur did die, though. Does it? I thought oh, maybe so. Maybe it does. It might die I, of natural, but I don't later, think so. But I, I could be wrong. But no. But l- later, you do see another drago that d- that does not have cyberne- yeah. cybernetics. But but there were two adult dragos at the beginning when they were when they were uh, playing with Lucas and Klaus. Yeah, yeah, no, no, they're different, definitely. Yeah, but okay. I just remember specifically someone saying, like, don't do that. And yeah, my, my DLs are a bit... I, well, um, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to check it again. But I, I, I'm pretty sure that, like, the light faded out of the eye or something. Like, I, I believe that the, the, yeah. that the Mecha Drago is dead. Yeah, probably. I, yeah, this hit me like a truck, honestly, yeah. to, to, get a little, to get a little personal about it. So when I was a kid, um, so I think in this game, um, for, like, the first few chapters, Luke is supposed to be around, like, 9 or 10. When I was around Lucas's age, um, I actually lost uh, my mother as well. And so uh, I had another sibling. I was kind of seen as the, the, the crybaby of the two of us. Was left with a, with a single father who, when, when Zach touched on like masculinity and um, ex- expressing grief kind of through these sort of difficult ways. So seeing this in a, in a video game, um, I've never seen something like this. And it, absolutely just was a moment where I had to kind of, you know, take a step back and take a little walk around my room for a second uh, and digest that. It was a lot to take in. 
it presents multiple different ways of grieving, doesn't it? Because not only do you have Lucas who's just crying all the time and you've got Flint whose immediate reaction is anger, but you mm-hmm. have Klaus who his immediate reaction is to be the adult of the three of them and go and take revenge first. Like what happens is that Klaus runs off to go and kill the Drago before anybody else and is at that bottom of that cliff. And like Klaus, I think the quote that they use specifically is they say Klaus ran off and what he said was, I want to get stronger. I want to get stronger. And that is so true for him. And it's like, like Joe said, like it's so powerful and you don't really see video games express grief in so many different ways. And like personally, when I was playing through it, um, I was surprised that the game didn't really dwell on the events for too long. Like usually you get a funeral and some things happen and you go around and talk to people. But a lot of the villagers in Tasmali kind of, they don't move on necessarily, but it's not really the first thing on their mind. And you don't really get to spend time at the grave. You go there and you talk to Lucas, but you don't really get the option of like, you know, pray at the grave or something like that. You don't even get to press F to pay respects like in like in, <laughs> like in Arkham City. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, just, yeah, I think I thank you for sharing, Joe. I think that was really important. It, you know, Mother 3 is often banded around as one of those games that's really powerful and really emotional. And you'd feel that in an hour and a half in a video game. I don't really think there's many other examples I can pull off the top of my head that would like draw that much of a reaction. Yeah, and the know. for me, it's the very serious situations and the um and like the very real feeling of seeing grief depicted in different ways that takes place in a GBA game with very cartoony visuals is a mm-hmm. is a, a hell of a juxtaposition and it, mm-hmm. and and felt very powerful like like the the chapter one of Mother Three just opens up with gut punches but like as an RPG sort of just gently shows you the basics of RPG gameplay the most complicated thing you do is um. Oh, you have to use this Drago Fang on the Drago before you before you can deal damage to it. But but it, it, at least it well communicates the basics of the system and, and using um, items and skills, even though it's, it's not it's you know it's not very challenging. But it, uh, I think paints Tasmali as a like almost a very pure naive kind of place that is ju- just reacts in a uh, in a confused manner to all of these calamities happening at once or all these odd events happening at once. Yeah, and and I think it would already be. Uh, a striking and astonishing game if it if it was just operating on these levels of how it presents grief and um kind of drawing out emotions that you wouldn't normally get from a game like this but it's so much more than that too i mean this game is also like sometimes gut-bustingly funny like <laughs> it has it has a it has a great sense of humor too that just is pervasive throughout it as well it's so it feels very much in the the mother tradition, at least of you know from my experience with Earthbound, uh, having multiple reasons to cry, both from empathy for the characters as well as just really ridiculous scenarios and enemies, like you know the moles <laughs> or the dungeon man. <laughs> yeah, and I mean they give they give you. Uh some clever enemies in, in this game like like there's a the the absurdist humor of earthbound is really signature of that game and it's, it's preserved for this one uh like there's status effects where you laugh uncontrollably or cry uncontrollably and uh i, I think I, I saw you mention this online somewhere alana but like when you learn a new skill the character usually has a fever for a few battles 
Yeah, it's outside. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably get into that later on. I think. Yeah, but the just like in things like the status effects and the di- and how uh, silly some of the dialogue is, like like how uh, Wes always calls Duster a moron, and even when he praises Duster, it's like bookended by calling him a moron, and just everything about Kumatora for being a princess, but also extremely uh coarse <laughs> in her in her in her mannerisms but uh, but being you know like like you know superficially just you know cute uses magic kind of a you know magical girl character like Paula from Earthbound but in but in dialogue and in how she presents herself it, she's not the demure Paula from Earthbound like it, there's a lot of really good humor in Mother 3 yeah, um, it's pervasive throughout the series. And actually, I don't know if anybody else noticed this, but I think when I started playing Mother 3, the first thing I noticed was how actually different it was from Mother 1 and 2, I suppose. Because like you've already suggested to Mike, um, like Mother 1 and 2 have like, you're basically a boy and you leave the house and you're on your adventure. That's it. There you go. Um, And Mother 3 takes three to four chapters before you even get a chance to control Lucas at all. But like, there's so many differences to the formula and i remember reading an interview with a toy i think a few years after mother three came out and they were asking him like well you know how did you get into it what did you take for writing rpgs and things and he was like oh well, when we started doing earthbound and mother one and whatever um he compared rpgs to road movies basically so going from like town to town and mother three doesn't do that mother three is well, I'm in chapter seven and I have left Tasmili twice, maybe. Um, not even to go to another town necessarily. Um, even like outside of just that one setting, you compared Kumatora to Paula. Like Paula and Anna uh, wear pink dresses and they're girls mm-hmm. and they're really girly and they carry teddy bears around. Kumatora threatens to cut off a limb to get out of a bear trap. Yeah, That's like how you're so introduced awesome. to her. And her name, <laughs> her name means bear tiger. Yeah, exactly. So it does a lot to differentiate itself while retaining that like core artistic style and that core humor. And I was really surprised by the structural difference. It really pleasantly like took me to one like took me to side, and I was like, "Oh, good. I'm glad it's doing something different." But it can stand on its own as well. Like Mother Three takes place like an undetermined amount of time after Earthbound, but mm-hmm. you know it's got some shared characters and stuff. I'm not even sure. I, I mean, I know who at least one of the important shared characters is, but I don't think we even properly are introduced to him in the part of the game that I played, which is you know, no. and, I, and I'm, no, I'm, par- I'm yeah, and I'm not, partway through. I'm partway chapter through chapter five, four. You have yeah, not, no. yeah, I'm only partway through chapter four now. But uh, l- let's go into chapter two a little bit. We're, we're talking about things that the world of Tasmalee doesn't really have need of, and I think one of those things is thieves. Um, <laughs> because like like Wes and and his uh, son Duster are part of some grand brother like ancestral tradition of thieves, and uh, so like um, Wes has been training Duster his whole life in stealth and guile and using thief tools. And uh, in, in chapter one, he uses staples to you know put enough staples into a giant staples into a wall to create a ladder, which is just amusing. And most of chapter two is basically uh, sneaking into Osohoi Castle, north of Tasmalee Village, to steal the treasure within. And, it, of course, it moves along the plot with this, these mysterious pigmen. Uh, that's also when Kumator is introduced. But uh, I, I want to take another diversion for a second. I just, uh, talking about the funny humor in Mother 3, some things are just just presented as they are, and they are very silly but are very accepted in a way that I just find hilarious. Like, oh yeah, these are giant staples. Put these in a wall and make a ladder go up. And, uh, oh yeah, um, talk to a frog to save. These are saved frogs. They're your friends. Um, here is a rope snake. <laughs> it's your it's your grappling hook. Just just like uh, like simple things like that. I just find very hilarious. 
and how it and how that humor even goes to the battle system with the with the rhythm based <laughs> battle system, which basically has me sitting here like, okay, one, two, three. Four. <laughs> <laughs> you shut your eyes when you do it as well. I I try. Yeah. I, try to yeah. Yeah. I I I don't know if it totally works in an emulated version of the game. I I find it lucky if I get more, it, like uh, hugely lucky if I get more than two hits on the on the rhythm gameplay. I've gotten I've gotten a few sixteens. I'm yeah. I've gotten like one or two sixteens. I've gotten a few sixteens. Like right, I'm I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna blame my time. I'm gonna blame my extremely stupid brick of a laptop on this. <laughs> I, I, I'm emul- I, I I'm playing it on uh, the SNES Classic. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but um, <laughs> it, it 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 works there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I truly think that my very old, slightly outdated VBA software might be to blame, but I, I, I have not been able to reliably get uh, multi-hitting on the regular attacks, but it, but it is a, a cool bit of gameplay, at least. It's a cool nod to the um, eight melodies as well, isn't it? And there's a few things like that, like the needles. Right, um, that's right. The needles are guarded by, we haven't talked about them, gypsies yet. Oh, we haven't talked about them, gypsies. Will. Oh my God. Yeah, um, the gypsies are named after uh, the musical terms, aren't they? The seven, oh, the... Seven modular scales of musical theory. So That's all seven of the okay. Egyptians are named after those. And they, so instead of going around to get the A melodies, you're getting the seven needles guarded by the musical theories. And it's much more subtle with its musical themes, but like the battle system is probably where it's most prevalent because each character has their own musical instrument that goes with their attack. Like, um, I think Kumatoras is a rock guitar and then Dusters is either an acoustic or something else. I can't remember, but. Just just the, uh, the bass. Yeah, no, it's, oh, it's, he it's, does. It's like, he does. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. like a, it's like a slap bass. I thought. Of course, <laughs> of course he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and uh, Ionian Ionian scale is the sort of what we think of as the classical, you know, like traditional uh, Western musical scale. But yeah, all all the Medjipsies are named after those, and they are described as beings that have been that are thousands of years old. And may even there may have been predecessor Majipsies that these are the children of. It's it's not clear if if these Majipsies are eternal, but definitely Majipsies are have been the guardians of these islands since time immemorial, and, and they appear to be um, well, okay. Um, they're described as uh, as neither male nor female, um, and uh, not exactly people, not exactly gods, but uh, but they appear to be. They they look like men in drag, and uh, and they and they all have a sort of a visible uh, five o'clock shadow. Yeah, they're uh, they seem very drag and and Doctor Frankenfurter mm-hmm. <laughs> in, oh, in yeah. inspired. Um, and they always put little hearts at the end of their uh, their statements. Yeah, I, I imagine this might have been this might have been some of the localization issue because I can just imagine Nintendo of America being like. Uh, yeah. like, like how are, how are we gonna like put the definitely insensitive Japanese Okama visual and yeah. make and make it yeah. more sensitive? Like, I mean, it, there's a sequence that we're getting a lot. I'm getting a little ahead of us here, but there's a sequence in Chapter Four where the way <laughs> yeah. that Lucas gets his magic powers or his PK powers is via something. I, I don't know exactly what happens to him in like a hot spring or something. Um, it, it, and it, I, I watched that and I'm like, I, I don't know how you trick. I don't know how you localize that. Cause it's just, no, no, no. That's all. That's all I have is no. But, but I, I mean, but to go over just how powerful the Majipsies are. Uh, one of the Majipsies also gave Kumatora her psi powers. So the, mm-hmm. it, it seems like they govern all of the magic in this, uh, in the world of mother three. And, and they, they also are, uh, 
they have different personalities, but are sort of a very, you know, over-affectionate kind of uh, um, over-the-top dialogue style uh, tone that they have. But the, the best thing about them is the saxophone theme that plays in their uh, in their little house. <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that's a, the music in this game is really good in general, but that, that's, I think, a standout track is the Majipsy saxophone. It's a huge soundtrack as well, isn't it? It's about mm-hmm. 250 tracks, I believe. That For a Game Boy Advance composed. game. For a yeah. Game Boy Advance game, that is wild. It's massive, yeah. So we're kind of all over the place here, but let's go back to Chapter 2. Duster has to go through Osohe Castle, and this is really the first... This is the first dungeon in the game, like the first real dungeon-ass dungeon. Uh, And there really isn't an equivalent in Chapter 3. But for most of it, you're just playing as Duster, who has thief tricks. He can use a tickle stick to lower enemy defense. (laughs) Uh, The the, the wall staples uh, can stun enemies for two or three turns, and they're shockingly effective. I use the wall staples a lot in chapter in uh, chapter two. Um, But he but he's sort of the thief and uh, support like support attacking character. And uh, you're sneaking through this castle full of ghosts. You have to. Uh, find the rope snake and staple some walls and, and sneak around and you find a very shiny spittoon at the end. But that's not that's not the treasure that Wes was looking for. So you return to the castle and meet Kumatora there. But now it's been invaded by the pig mask army. These um these ne'er do wells and they also they're they also capitalists. yeah they well they're they're definitely fascists and and in a way impose capitalism or or at least a twisted uh a, a twisted um monster monstrous ver- uh, version of capitalism which it, capitalism inevitably becomes uh, upon upon Tasmali but of course the the best thing about the pig mask army is that they squeal and do a one-armed salute just like the shocker army and common rider 1971 Oh, okay. I did not think that was going to be your common nope. rider reference, and that is not how I interpreted that salute. So. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, it's it's an it's an evil masked army where people like screech while saluting in a way that might remind you of you know certain historical fascist governments. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> it made me think of common rider. <laughs> It is, it is also interesting that when you take control of whichever character you take control of during whichever chapter, um, they go mute. So like when you're playing as Flint, Flint doesn't talk, but he does in chapter two. And then when you're playing as Duster, when you pre, before you play as Duster and you see him just like putting up the staples and such, he's, you know, verbalizing and such. But when you're taking control of him, he doesn't do that anymore. He's a silent, uh, silent protagonist, just like a Dragon Quest game, which I found was really interesting. Yeah, I didn't know how to take that. I mean, obviously, it's like I've not you know you play a silent protagonist all the time, but like it's interesting that it moves with the character, and I wasn't expecting that because I thought Lucas would be mute throughout. That was my expectation going in because of Ness, but no, everybody is as long as you're playing as them. And like, actually, I think it makes to go back to the grief bit with Flynn, I think that makes that more powerful because he's not saying any words when he's grieving. He's not crying. He's just angry. And it makes a lot of things more effective in some ways. Like, I think Lucas is probably most mute for the second half of the game because that's who you're controlling. But I did find it really interesting that it moved between the whole cast, depending on who was the narrative point of view, I guess. I want to talk about Duster a little bit more because I think that there's a, I don't know if I want to call it a, a clash or not, but, uh, like everyone mentions that he smells bad and that he's kind of ugly and his his sprite has like an oddly shaped head and uh and like sort of ugly facial hair like a bad mustache or something but his actions are generally a person who does good and is and is trying to do his best 
Am, am I am I crazy for thinking that? Like, I, I think they they make him deliberately a bit of a lose, like look like a loser, but act like a good person. But everyone's always calling him a loser in a way that I wonder if there's a, a, a second meaning behind it. I mean, I don't know, but does he not also have a clubbed foot? Oh yeah, no, he yeah, yeah yeah he walks with a limp. Yeah, I'm thinking it's just kind of a commentary on how frequently people with disabilities are just seen in this sort of lesser light, where it's like, oh, you're you're a moron, you smell, or you're ugly or something. And it's like, he's very heroic. And not that, you know, people with disabilities necessarily need to be heroes, but like, he's not any of these things that people say he is. He's just a person with a club foot. Yeah. I mean, he's also the most useful person in battle when you get later. I mean, I, I, he has so many different abilities that do so many different things and they don't cost any magic points. I mean, like he, he's really valuable. (laughs) I think that uh, as like a sort of a main trio, uh, no disrespect to, to Flint, Salsa, or Boney, who are who are sort of more temporary. Uh, Lucas, Kumatora, and Duster are really really good. They all feel useful and powerful, mm-hmm. um, which is which is good because like I, I I would get really annoyed with uh, Paula and Jeff at different times playing Earthbound, but uh, <laughs> bottle rockets then. <laughs> well, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't afford bottle rockets for part of the game. <laughs> <laughs> but once, but once he realized that Jeff's inventory should be his equipment, and then multi bottle rockets, uh, he he gets a little bit, he gets a little bit less annoying. But I think you have a really good balance. Like like Lucas is sort of uh, he's probably the tankiest one. He's got and he's got you know physical and magic. Uh, Duster is really fast. Sometimes he can avoid back attacks or do early strikes, and he has a lot of really good support skills to stun or trip or or change the stats of the enemy. And Luke and Kumatora is a very powerful magic user, and it's like, like I, I really dig all three of these. Like, I, I'm 100% okay rolling through a long RPG with this trio. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at least through most of Chapter 4 onward, like, once you have those three all together, they're a bit rock solid. I, I know that, uh, that and, and while Boney sort of comes and goes with the party... Unless I'm misremembering that, like, does, does Boney stay th- all the way through chapter five and six? Boney does, yeah. Um, he doesn't leave really until, yeah, he's kind of with Lucas the whole way once you control Lucas. Right, okay. I, I thought that Boney left the party at one point. But again, uh, again, I, I do have him with me, but I'm still, again, pr- uh, pretty early in chapter four. He does, but for a non-combat bit. All right, I, I'm I'm misremembering it slightly. So, so yeah, I, I just think this is, it's a really good, likable cast and team but uh, we've barely talked about chapter three, and I think we need to. Um, Salsa the monkey. What, what a like. Other than other than Flint and Hinawa, this is the most tragic story in the whole game. Mm-hmm. Other than every other tragic story. Yeah. Other other than everyone's tragedy in this game. Uh, okay, let's just throw one more tragedy on the pile, I guess, because yeah. <laughs> because uh, Salsa's uh, monkey girlfriend is uh, is captured and now must uh, dance for the, for the rather unpleasant facade in, and, and help facade, uh, bring down Tasmali village or, or corrupt Tasmali village in a, a story that was sometimes like, like, why is this happening? Why do they need Salsa's help? Like at all? But I guess they just wanted the monkey to do their bidding. Um, Salsa has barely any offense and really just does monkey dances and tricks while while uh, while Salsa's companions, who, um, whoever mm-hmm. is with him at the time, does really a lot of the heavy, heavy lifting in battle. But it's ba- basically you have to do a, a whole chapter as a monkey slave. That is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a bit, as, as cute as Salsa is, a bit of a downer. 
It's dark, isn't it? You see yeah. Facade and uh, Salsa very briefly, I think, in chapter one or two. Like, oh, it's yes. two, isn't it? Because um, Duster bumps into Facade as he's running towards the Sohe Castle. Mm-hmm. And there's also the kid at one point when you come back from a Sohe Castle the first time. And he's like, oh, I've got this bag of coins. I'm going to hide it here. I'm going to tell you and nobody else. Mm-hmm. And um, it's what Facade gives um the kid and yeah the kids the kid's name is yeah, like the kid's name is butch and this is introducing currency for the first time to tasmalee right. village yeah it's really weird because yeah. like there is a shop in tasmalee and you just take stuff you don't swap it i was really weirded out by this i was like oh wait do i not need to trade anything i was like did you want to take this item yeah okay like kind of thing because you're so used to using currency in other rpgs and then all of a sudden like and in life yeah. yeah it it comes along and then there's money and money corrupts and and yeah. there is a barter system in a Sohei castle when you you give uh rotten eclairs to to ghosts in exchange for items <laughs> I love and you, that. and you and you can give uh nuts to a lady in town to, and have her bake cookies or bread for you but that's but, but but still this is um like this is just the most elementary of barter systems and uh and by Facade giving coins to Butch and then later stealing them and having Butch blame Duster for the theft introduces currency and then – but also introduces like the idea of, of of greed and selfishness that wasn't there before. Did anybody try to steal the money as Duster? Yeah. Because I did. And you oh, I, 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 I searched like, every – You thought about stealing the money, but mm-hmm. you did. <laughs> I still find it so weird. I, I, I mentioned this earlier that – you know, there are thieves who care very much about being thieves, or at least Wes does, in a place where, like, the idea of theft is a foreign concept. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. Like, I mean, they, they could have decided that Wes and, and Duster were, you know, a sacred order of ninjas or adventurers or something. But no, they went with, like, thief, but, like, uh, almost like gentleman thief, like, you know, like Arsene Lupin or, uh, or like, you know, the anime version, Lupin the Third, but... The th- thieves in a pl- in a land with nothing to steal is is kind of what Wes and Duster are. Right. Until, you know, until the day everything changed. <laughs> it, it was hard going through chapter three because of all the moments when Facade like utilizes the shock collar on Salsa. It's just like, oh god, this is really like, this is really excessive. This is really, this is a lot. <laughs> I stressed out when I got the dancing wrong in the Asahi Castle basement because I was like, oh my god, he's going to shock him. And he did every single time without fail. That's horrible because you've already seen some of the, like, the pig mask army with some of the chimera monsters at this point. Like, you can definitely get that something's going on and, you know, you don't want that to happen to Salsa either. Like, Salsa's very cute and I don't want anything... I don't want anyone to harm him. Mike, I I don't know if this happens or not. Maybe it does and I forgot. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But but yeah. but my great fear is that Salsa reunites with his uh monkey love and she's been made into a chimera. Uh, that I, 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 I I'm I'm dreading that happening, but I don't know if it does or not, truly. But uh, but my, my moment with Salsa that I found this is me being a moron, but the uh there's a point where you need to go to the right side of the room to a window to escape. But I, I kept stupidly either tr- um trying the front door, which got Salsa no. shocked every time. But because uh, Facade would turn over in his sleep and land on the buzzer, and then I, and then and then I tried <laughs> to steal the buzzer from Facade. But every time you you try to search the bed, Facade rolls over in his sleep and and Salsa gets shocked again. So I accidentally shocked oh. Salsa a dozen times trying to figure out what to do. But really, I just had to move to the right a little bit. <laughs> Same thing. Same. Not quite as embarrassing as what stopped me from playing Earthbound when I was nine, but uh, right right up there. 
Uh, in chapter two, I couldn't figure out that you needed to use that rope snake to get across the chandelier for like an hour and a half. So, or, <laughs> an hour and a half is not an exaggeration. I wish it was. Yeah, we've all had these moments before, but I think it's 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 more defensible me talking about when I was in the single digits of age range, but and not being in my thirties. It happens. Just subtly throwing shade at Zach. <laughs> I mean. It happened. It happened to me too. I'm not, I didn't. I didn't mean it that way. But uh, but but chapter three ends with Salsa uh, meeting Kumatora and Wes, breaking free of Facade's control, and and seeming to get away with it. But uh, Facade has introduced currency to Butch, sown seeds of mistrust, and also given three items called happy boxes to households in the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's unclear how you use a happy box, but just having them around instills feelings in people. It's just a TV, right? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was an allegory for TV or radio, but uh, yeah. but yeah. but it, but it's not really clearly it's not really clearly demonstrated what they do. I mean, the idea is I think that like you have a TV to distract you from how much you hate your day job that plays into this like capitalistic system um, that makes billionaires richer. I mean, I'm getting political here, but I think this game is very political. Oh, it extremely <laughs> is. I mean, really, what they did is they, they took a they took a society that was innocent and pure and didn't have much of an idea of of possessions. Um, again, again, you can just take things from the shop and was definitely focused on community and introduce capitalism in a way that distorts what the town is. I, I mean, it goes without saying, it's a little bit inspiring to see when the, the fire breaks out in the woods, the whole town comes together and tries to help everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and there's there's not a single bad actor in the entire village. Like, they, they, they're going out to rescue the people that live in the woods. They're, um, like, Flint is very heroic. Everyone is, is sort of helping or doing, or doing their part. And then at the beginning of Chapter 4, because of the introdu- introduction of the happy boxes and currency and distrust, They've sort of instilled the worst parts of capitalism, basically the uh, rewarding intense greed and and valuing the accumulation of capital over all else. Uh, That is very, very clear in Chapter 4 that that, that Tasmali has warped into that, even though there are structural improvements and technological improvements, which which can come with uh, with you know when capitalism is properly we- weaponized, but they aren't the the sharing and caring community that they used to be. No. Yeah, there's definitely a, a good reason for when this one our poll that uh, I posted a selfie of me happily drowning in Marxist literature. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it absolutely does do that. Like the entire village just changes and there's you know this three-year gap that they show the entire village just changes in such a a startling way i think it's really interesting that they just do a straight time skip and not gradually show you how it changes Mm -hmm. like you know how your entire life can change in the blink of an eye just because of a little bit of money some political advertising and television and that's Mm -hmm. it that's what happens i I mean what i found fascinating about it is like the town looks like an earthbound town and it reminds you of like how terrible every adult in in an earthbound town was (laughs) Mm -hmm. like oh they're they're all horrible and they're all the worst like it's like south park i mean like it's like the adults all get it wrong and like it's become that town where the adults all get it wrong yeah it it, it looks like one it went from being almost a quaint frontier town to being one from earthbound and then i think Later in the game, we'll see almost a version of Foresight from Earthbound, where just by introducing 
concepts and with also some double talk and some sophistry coming out of facade they're turning this community into into a monster that is you know late stage capitalist and even fascist and it's definitely manipulated by the pig mask army i'm gonna say that this opening to chapter four like this first 15 20 minutes i just got really into exploring every little nook and cranny of this and picking it out. But it's really the one of the most detailed depictions of the worst sides of capitalism that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much here, and I like just have a few things that I really took notice of. Um, first of all, with Lucas not wanting to take a happy box, and everyone's like, come on, why don't you take a happy box? Sort of by extension, Flint also hasn't been exposed to happy boxes, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's um, not one in their house, at least. Right. And Mayor Pusher has has a mansion now and what appears to be a Rolls Royce on his lawn, but he's asking you for donations. There's, um, you know, the Thomas shop is now charging money and it's run by the sun. Um, the, pig, the pig masks are talking now where they were only squealing before. They were talking to each other, and in Chapter 3, when you were controlling Salsa, you could talk to the pig masks in the castle. But they're they're, they're definitely much more vocal and, and much more talkative in Chapter 4 than mm-hmm. they were in previous ones. When they, when they just yeah. ap- appeared to, you know, squeal or screech like, you know, Kamen Rider Shocker Army types. <laughs> but it was, only, it was only when you were controlling another animal that they were right. talking to you, though. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, and I won't go through all of it, but... One scene that really struck me was that there was this girl who was standing in front of a happy box and she was crying because she wanted to see her grandpa, but she couldn't take her eyes off the happy box. And it was like, oh, God, (laughs) It, it really is something that I felt very strongly about seeing that in terms of, you know, own experiences of not wanting to go outside or spend time with people because you're to a screen or something the, the disinformation that comes that can come through that wow. I, I i'm worried that uh well not worried but i think that otoy might be i think that itoy might be the kind of person where when the dominant form of uh cultural exchange or media exchange worldwide went from radio to television that he thought the birth of television was the death of imagination because that that's something that my uh <laughs> that my grandfather used to say because as someone who loved radio and that and was less enthused by his uh by his children watching tv so so often but the societal change that happened with the changes brought upon by facade this is a a very dystopian view of capitalism where uh lucas and uh and i guess flint reggie the rostov guy who would always preach messages of peace and love uh has also resisted getting a happy box but is but is is ostracized for it yeah and then when we get to the uh the nursing home <laughs> Oh gosh! Yeah. yeah. Oh I mean, my God. My my mom was very recently working in a nursing home, and it's it's pretty accurate. Unfortunately, yeah. 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 There's a happy box in it, and they're like, "Oh, it's great. They have a happy box, but it's literally a dilapidated, um, leaking jail." Yep. It's Wes's old home as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do we want to keep going with the observa- observations in chapter four? Yeah. Like okay. The jail cell. The jail cell, and you see this this officer who says, "Please don't stare directly at me. It may make me want to arrest you." <laughs> oh God! Oh boy! And you have the mayor who's wanting other people to join the police force, and is saying you can make you can even make friends with pig mask people. Gosh. 
I think Itoi has a particular view of uh, of police, and in needless <laughs> to say, it is not a possible one. Yeah, again, it's the same. It's the same view we had in Earthbound. It's just slightly less funny. Like honestly, like what we're looking at here is like like sort of a distilled version of every town we saw in Earthbound, but it it's a lot less funny and it's way more cutting. Like, satire is turned up by to eleven, um, and it's just painful now instead of being even like vaguely amusing. Like you might get like a small chuckle out of it, but mostly it's like oh. Oh, oh, that 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 that's still way too real in 2020. Yeah, they've not abandoned subtlety, but have but are are not trying to be subtle with this. This is a a late stage capitalism dystopia that feels real enough looking at it in context to make the player very uncomfortable. If you're yeah. even uh-huh. just a little woke. If if you play this game and can't see any resemblance to the world we live in, then I have some questions. But we're not gonna we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna ask that question on the podcast. Again. We haven't even talked about Lucas as a child as a child worker in a factory yet. Yeah, jeez, yeah. right. And not only is it like everyone in the town is like, well, why aren't you working in the factory, child? <laughs> yeah, it, ter- it turns out that when you reward evil actions and pure greed uh you lose your humanity a little bit and 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 uh mother three demonstrates that sometimes very literally and sometimes a little bit more tongue-in-cheek satire but that's that's what this game becomes in chapter four and it's it, it's a it's an eye-widening moment that that just makes me only more compelled to continue because this is a solid rpg from a mechanic mechanical standpoint and i i get weird and obsessive about rpg mechanics too sometimes so that that's important to me but also this game is telling a compelling story that goes places that many rpgs don't like how many how many rpgs do you know of depict different forms of expressing grief and pointed criticisms of capitalism and absurdist humor and uh object uncomfortable cruelty in its first six hours <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think this might be a list of one, unless uh, un- unless Disco Elysium is even crazier than I think it might be. Uh, <laughs> that probably is the only other one I would yeah. think. Yeah, when I was creating those criteria off the cuff, I, I thought around a little bit ago. Hmm, maybe Disco Elysium. I gotta play more of that thing. But Disco Elysium is also not made by Nintendo, which just mm. makes this like right. So it's, strange. Yeah, it's definitely more obvious on what it's going for on the surface. You can play one of these characters in Super Smash Brothers. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. popular franchises in the world. It's made Nintendo billions. Yeah. Oh man, I can play a video game and uh, and have Terry Bogard face against someone that is whose goal is to destroy capitalism in his hometown. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect video game. <laughs> isn't, isn't that just Terry Bogard? Well, okay. Geese, Geese Howard, aka Jeff Bezos. Oh no. <laughs> okay, Joe. Coming out of you, that comment was a little bit predictable. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> okay. Um. All right. Now, if I had to bust out my Geese Howard impersonation, twenty-five years in the making, maybe we're near the end of the episode. <laughs> Um, I mean, there's so much to go with here. Uh, like, really, the story of, of Mother 3 is only beginning from the point where we're stopping, but uh, we're going to get into Endgame and the truth behind the Magypsies and the Pig Mask Army and Facade and others much later, because there's a lot to unpack in the second half of Mother 3 that I have played a lot of and got spoiled on a few things, but dare not say another word right now. Uh, th- that is something that we are going to discuss in greater detail next week. But uh, listeners, I, I, I hope that you've enjoyed our discussion of Mother 3. This is a game that goes 
pretty amazing places, and I'm excited to hopefully cross it off my list finally. I'm going to have to go a little hard at it this week, but I think I can manage. Uh, but next week, next month, we are going to have two games on Yakuza 0. Uh, like a, a couple people playing Yakuza games for the first time. Uh, at least one or two Yakuza veterans on the podcast. I've, I've uh, talked to a couple RPG fan staff about it, and there's some people excited to play it. And, and, and Joe, uh, have, you, have you played a Yakuza game before? Yep, I played Kiwami a little bit ago. All right. I the only Yakuza game I've played at length is the Fist of the North Star game made by the same team. So I I'm not, so I don't think that even counts. Um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be going in pretty cold, and I know a couple people are really excited to chat about it. Not 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 necessarily including you, Joe. I'm, I've, I I think people that listen to other RPG fan podcasts will know who I'm referring to. <laughs> but we got we got Very some. Definitely. Yeah, Might we got be one some, of the co-hosts of Random, maybe. Um, or uh, or even a former co-host of Random. Yeah, indeed. There you go. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, in June, we are having two episodes in Yakuza 0, and, uh, usually we pick, um, the games for Retro Encounter, uh, two or two and a half months in advance, but don't tell the listeners until the month before, but we decided to have a public poll this time for the game coming after Yakuza 0, so that, uh, the results of that poll are already completed. Um, the July game is going to be Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, which was a, the result of a poll in the first week of May. And so excited to finally play that game. Yeah, me, me too. That's another game I've, I've started it a couple of times and I've never gotten very far, but I'm going to get tough, uh, put on some, I don't know, some episodes of Law and Order SVU and just, and just go ham on a handheld <laughs> RPG. Honor SVU, you know, um, if you want something that's a little bit less disturbing than Criminal Minds and a little better written than The Mentalist, I mean, that, that, that's, that's where you end up. Oh, God. There's not a Mentalist comparison. <laughs> uh, so, yes, in July, we are having two episodes on Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, uh, our first exploration of the Ogre saga of RPGs. Um, and I know, and that's going to be a lot of fun when we get to that in July. But listeners, if you want to contact us directly, the best way to do so is to email retro at rpgfan.com. You can also comment on RPG Fan's message boards. Visit the Facebook page, the Instagram page, the Twitter page, the Discord server, the Twitch channel. Uh, the Discord server is always popping. The Twitch channel has something streaming every day. And the Facebook page gets more activity than our old forums. There's so many ways to interact with us that isn't just listening to podcasts. But if you want to listen to more podcasts, we've got you covered there, too. There's a random encounter about randomness and posting every two weeks rhythm encounter about rpg fan music and posting every this space blank and phoenix edge which focuses mostly on current events and posts every single week phoenix edge records live on monday evenings north american time uh, but if you want to review retro encounter or those other three podcasts you can review us on itunes google play whatever podcast listening venue you choose we've recently changed podcast hosting services so now you can also find us on spotify podcast addict and a bunch of others that i couldn't recite for you now without a list there's a lot of ways to listen and we appreciate every review and every download thank you listeners but uh Listeners, if you want to interact with one of the panelists directly, let's tell you how to do so, starting with you, Joe. You can catch me on the social media, on uh, Twitter and Facebook for RPG Fan, um, and you can also find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram as at EvilEast. Be sure to look out for what might be a meme series on Tactics Ogre, but if it was a musical called Let Us Sing Together. <laughs> Are you saying that EvilEast likes EvilEast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, Zach, how can listeners find you? You should be. Um, <laughs> you can email me at ZachW at RPGFan.com, or you can find me on Discord at ZachW. And Alana. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at AlanaHagues, or you can email me at AlanaH at RPGFan.com. 
And listeners, if you want to reach me directly, I am at the Real Monsoon on Twitter most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs on Twitter other times, and Monsoon Mike on RPG Fans Discord. So I'm not going to say we've done it because we definitely haven't. This uh, Mother <laughs> Three has so much to unpack, and we are barely getting into the meat of the game. So I think next episode there might be crying from like I'm going to put the over under of people crying on this podcast at three and a half. <laughs> um, Who do you think is not going to cry, Mike? Maybe I should. Okay, fine. Uh, even odds. <laughs> um, I mean, you lose if you say me, because I've already done it, like, twice. Right, so have I. No, I mean on air, on the podcast, just us openly weeping for oh. 90 seconds. Ah. Oh, okay, then. I'll definitely will be then. <laughs> okay. Right. The line stays at three and a half. Uh, <laughs> Weep <we> squad. <laughs> All right, cry guys and cry girls. Cry babies. <laughs> Thank you. Good night and good luck. Not a mentalist comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I had to mention it just because I've been so f- f- so annoyed at that show for two weeks. I think I'm gonna edit th- I think I'm gonna edit that out. But uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, two ep- two episodes. Not them? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm in season three. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see him shoot Bradley Whitford in the head. Okay, <laughs> just YouTube it then. I already have. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I was I was depressed for a week and watched like fifty episodes of the of the Mentalist. <laughs> I don't know what I'm in anymore. Uh, okay. Not Not even even that, I guess. Else, Mike, don't worry. Oh god. <laughs>